inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning. Welcome listeners to Outlook. Outlook on Radio Western, either listening live on Monday morning on Radio Western 94.9 or you're listening as a podcast. If you are, thank you. We are back today, Brian, with a guest we've been talking about for a couple months now. Yes, we uh, were actually live, live last week from the studio for the first time, which was pretty awesome. But it's still great to do these pre-records because... It helps for guests, you know, you don't have to have that set time right at Mondays at 11 to be able to find their availability. So I think this is great. And this is one we've been looking forward to for quite a while, Carrie. You made this, as we like to call a Carrie connection again for the show. Uh, I don't even know when you connected with our guest today, Leona Godin. But we did have her on this show actually back in 2020 on, well, it aired on the 8th of June in 2020. So... Over a year ago now, about 16 months, I guess, uh, we had Leona Godin on the show. And uh, at that point, Leona, you were calling in from Colorado, but I don't believe that's where you are today on uh, um, when you're calling in from. No. Hello. I'm so glad to be back. And I am calling in from New York City, back in New York City, where it all began, sort of, not really, but um, I was here for many, many years and um, away for a few years. and. Uh, it's actually really great to be back and back in the city and back on the show. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's like, I hope you know now you're like a friend of our show because now even more with this book, we're going to talk about on the show today because this is just like I've been telling people, uh, all the things I wanted to explain about blindness, um, you put in this book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. And so I can't wait to talk about that. Uh, I've been doing some press Helping you out a bit and trying to get the sales there. I was on. You on, have been amazing. Thank I was on you. the rumpus, and so it was so great to talk to you that time. It was. It felt really sort of relaxed. This is what we're hoping today will be because we just want to have a conversation about our perspectives, and, and there's a lot to talk about from this book. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah, it was a really great discussion last time. Obviously, it was sort of a plethora of topics that we <laughs> covered a lot of stuff, and we talked about you growing up in in San Francisco, and we talked a lot about your your website, Aromatica Poetica, and a bunch mm -hmm. about your artsy punk kind of phases in the 80s and all sorts of stuff last time. But we did touch on the book, Their Plant Eyes, near the end of last episode, though at that point it was still, well, when I did my research for the last time you were on, it was called Seeing and Not Seeing, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness, though at the time you mentioned that that title wasn't selling enough, you liked, that they liked the second half, but the first half was being worked on. So. Yeah. I noticed now, though, that the introduction of your book still holds the title Seeing and Not Seeing, so you still were able to make use of that in the book um, in some form. And uh, yeah, it's just interesting to think back then, and you said you were in the, a big, massive edit at the time. I was. So I don't know from last yeah. June, yeah. from there, to sort of tie that in, if you remember kind of when you came up with, when you changed the title to Their Plant Eyes, it must have been around that time or maybe it was sometime close. After. Yeah. It was really close to when we talked. Cause, um, I think by the end of that summer, by the end of the summer of 2020, 
I believe the new title was in place. So yeah, I was probably very much in a state of flux because they had just told me it's not selling enough, um, which, you know, publisher speech speak is, um, you know, telling me that, uh, they, they didn't think that it was catchy. And it's funny because I had used that term seeing and not seeing for a while, like in a few different projects. And it always was sort of like the subtitle in, in different projects. Like I, I wrote this play about um, the, what I used to call the, uh, the very sexy history of the invention of Braille, which of course, some of that got kind of worked into the book as well. Um, but it was called The Spectator and the Blind Man, Stories of Seeing and Not Seeing. So I've been kind of in love with that idea of seeing and not hyphen seeing for, for a while. Um, and I, we, you know, for a little bit, we thought we might put that into the subtitle or something, but um, no, this needed to be a new, a new project with a new name. So it was probably, we talked in June. So maybe by August, we had their plant eyes as the title. And we're going to talk about Milton, John Milton, um, along with a lot of other writers you mentioned throughout your book, past and present, way, way past. Um, mm -hmm. But of course, he was the one who wrote Paradise Lost in which year was that? 16? That was published in 1667. Okay. So then, like you say, he became, he became blind at some point and he would have had to dictate a lot of this. Someone? Yes, he did. Um, so he was really a scholar of kind of the, the most extreme variety. He spoke or he read a bunch of different languages, you know, including weird things like Aramaic. So he could read, uh, you know, the, the language that uh, that Jesus uh, if, uh, probably spoke and things like that. So he was extremely um, uh, literate, shall we say, beyond the average human being. Um, and he did that all as a sighted person, but began losing his sight um, kind of in his late 30s, early 40s. And by the time he was about 43, he had no more vision. And it's really interesting because a lot of scholars believe, and, and I, I tend to agree, that there it's very likely that he never would have actually written Paradise Lost if he hadn't gone blind, because he was really caught up in very volatile um, 17th century politics in England at the time. And um, so he was writing a lot of like political pamphlets that were frankly pissing a lot of people off. And, um, and it, it was it, towards the end of that period of time, uh, people started, you know, sort of <clears throat> using his impending sort of blindness against him, you know, basically kind of mixing up the physical blindness with the with the metaphorical blindness. So, you know, saying he's kind of blind to his, you know, to, to the rightness of the situation, that sort of thing. But anyways, oh. at some, uh, at some point he, you know, realized that kind of being involved in like pamphleteering wars was probably not going to work out for him for very much longer. And he was also very much in, in trouble with the government and very well might've actually been executed as a, as a traitor if he hadn't gone blind as well. Some of his oh, friends kind yeah. of stuck up for him and stuff. So, yeah, so he, um, so he goes blind and uh, he had had the idea in mind for a really long time, but again, and he had been a poet, you know, as, as a, as a young man and stuff. So, you know, when you take a Milton class, oftentimes you'll read his you know, his juvenilia or whatever. So he was always, you know, interested in poetry, but again, he kind of got distracted and would write these like ridiculously long treatises and stuff. So 
after he lost his vision, he very much, um, you know, looked to the tradition of the blind bard, you know, and, and I think that's such an interesting point. You know, we don't really know if Homer existed or not. Um, nobody can say for sure, or if he did, if he was blind or not, nobody knows. But the idea of the blind bard really was inspirational, I think, for, for Milton to be able to not, you know, wallow in the difficulties of not having vision suddenly at age, you know, 43 or so, but instead took it upon himself to write, you know, not just a little poem, but, you know, 10,000 some odd lines of Paradise Lost. And he did this by, um, at night, he would kind of compose in his head and then he would wake up and apparently he would kind of wait around for an amanuensis to come along to, to dictate to. And there's this really funny quote where it's like he would wait uh, it, to be milked. Yeah, know, I was going to bring that up because it, <laughs> it was going to actually lead it into my next question, sort of, and which is sort of October Halloween themed is like sort of those images like milking and I don't know, um, and others I'll get to. But yeah, I was definitely going to bring that up. It's it's such a great image, yeah. And even <laughs> terms like amanuensis, like I'm not even sure if I'd heard that word. I mean, I've I've been a, I always had the academic uh, abilities growing up and through school, but I was quite artsy and into music, so I probably didn't maybe, especially near the end of high school, didn't pursue those as much as I would have liked to. So I just found your book overall had so many so many references and so much so much literary and especially at the beginning, the, the first few chapters touching on so much mm -hmm. classical literature from, you know, Homer. Yeah, it was, to, it was like a classical literature course. Yeah. yeah from Homer to John Milton to James Joyce and all of these, all of these people that I'd heard of, but I didn't know really anything about. And one thing that I've noticed with the book, and it's, it's one of these things we'll get into more as we discuss the book throughout the, today's episode is how, how deep some of the stuff is, especially in the la in the first few chapters and, I'll admit just not being as academically um, aware that I hadn't read most a lot of these texts. So I did find the first few chapters a bit of a challenge, which I think is a good thing. I, you know, I like to be challenged, um, but I, mm. I just I found that uh, a very so slightly difficult to read, though it's piqued my curiosity. And, and this is the, definitely the type of book I feel like I'll be reading multiple times throughout my life because it's... It's something I feel like I could read, you know, dozens of times and still get a lot out of it because there's just so much in there. And um, in one way, I found those first few chapters a challenge. And I, once I got to, I think about it was the Molyneux Man where it really hit me that chapter seven, I believe that was where it's like, whoa, this book really is is uh, catching my attention now. But at the same point, I have a real curiosity to learn more about about Homer and and the Iliad and Odyssey and these things that I'll probably not necessarily sit down and read in full, but just to just have uh, expand my knowledge and learn about these concepts and, and how this, this all culturally ties to blindness from so long ago. I just, I find that all very fascinating. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. I, I, I wonder about that, you know, I mean, I, I do feel like the, the book seems to um, take a turn maybe at some point, you know, where I get a little bit deeper into kind of present day and stuff, but that's certainly like the last third or so. So I, I try to like interweave current um, stories within these kind of ancient narratives and stuff, but I, I do, I do wonder, you know, if I got too, too literary with some of the stuff, but then it felt so ingrained, you know, like this idea of the blind bard and, and some of the other concepts, you know, the blind seer and all this stuff, it felt so important to me to, 
to start it from the beginning and to realize that this stuff is like really entrenched in our imaginations, you know, and it has been for an awfully long time. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but, but so, thanks for muddling through Brian. And that's what I'll say. No, for sure. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the nice thing about the book too, is that we've, uh, you know, we've actually had an episode a few weeks ago with a friend of ours from Ireland and we, we all read the book and talked about it for about an hour and a half on that show. And, and it's, it's, um, it's interesting how this really works, I think, as a handbook that can really stand the test of time and that, though I, I do love reading books in order and I always would, like, and I plan to read this book many more times in life in order, but I also think it's great how you, I, f- I feel like you can jump in on any chapter, really, and still get a lot from it. You don't really necessarily always have to read it in order, um, and I think that's also really great about it, that it's not such an arc that you can't you know, jump in and say, oh, maybe I just want to read you know, the chapter on Helen Keller or the chapter on Louis Braille right now, and then still go back and and read those earlier chapters as well. So I just, I really love that about the book as well. Yay, super. So speaking again, as it is, as we're recording this, it's it's October and Halloween's coming up. What is it with blindness as we get into metaphor and all of this, that it's, whether it's in, in the Bible or in a Greek tragedy, it's like gouging out the eyes and the blood spurting. And like, what, why do you think it's so graphic? It's so gross. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, you basically can really like get sighted people, you know, and probably blind people too. pretty cringy, just even talking about eye gouging, you know, it's pretty, it's a pretty cringy thing. I mean, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, um, you know, what we talked, what we've talked about many times, you and me carry about ocular centrism and, and about the idea that, you know, sight is so important that it becomes not just an important sense, but the but the most important sense, you know, so that, so that if you don't have vision, it it feels like you can't actually experience the world in any kind of real way, right? There's, there's the prejudice there, but, but I think that ocular centric tendency means that there's quite a bit of, um, like literary, uh, maybe passion or, um, interest in how vulnerable these, these, two eyeballs are, right? This very important sense is an extremely vulnerable uh, sense, has a very vulnerable sense organ, you know? So I think it has to do with the fact that, you know, it's just, it's right there, right? I mean, funny enough, right? Mixed up with all these ideas of superficiality and stuff, the eyeballs themselves are are quite superficial, right? I mean, they're, they're right there. I mean, it, you would have a hard time like ripping out somebody's heart, you know, well, they'll, they'll do that in uh, horror movies as well, but right. it's not quite as, it's not it's quite as, it's not quite as accessible in there. Yeah. It's not quite, yeah, the eyeballs are very accessible to violence. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for example, I think you might be alluding to say, for example, um, you know, Oedipus, I mean, very viscerally pulls his wife's you know, pins brooch off of her, off of her dress and sticks them into his eyeballs. And I mean, it, there's some time spent like with the, the graphic, you know, nature of, you know, the blood pouring down and the goo and the blah and the, <laughs> and, uh, and same thing, right. We're in uh, King Lear where they actually rip the eyeballs out, right. The, the evil dude rips the eyeballs out and, and there's this great expression out vile jelly. Right. Of like, which I think is just so amazing. Right. It's like, yeah, it's that vulnerability. I think of what it is uh, connected with how important the, the, the sense organs seem. It's like that how when they, in horror movies, they have like 
ketchup or something to look like the blood. Picturing grape jelly, same kind of <laughs> exactly. dark color. Grape jelly. And then, yeah, there's also that sort of like, like the, 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 the texture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, if the eyeball's not where it's supposed to be, it's, it's quite, quite a... It sounds, it seems quite gross. And then it's also, of course, attached to all these nerves and, you know, to the, to the brain itself, really. So um, yeah, good, good Halloween topic. I love it. Yeah, yeah kind of. <laughs> <laughs> because what I'm trying to do on this episode in particular, and um, whenever I talk about your book, Leona on Outlook, is that I'm trying, I, I'm trying to aim for certain audiences so, um, too. I'm thinking about that. And when we are airing on Radio Western, I'm, I'm trying to think about who might be listening. Uh, at the um, University of Western Ontario there. So I hope through this episode, we can kind of speak to, you know, maybe there's an English professor listening, or maybe there's a, some, you know, someone from science, science department or humanities or whatever. So um, all these topics we talk about today, um, including all this literature, it's a great deep dive, as, you, as we said. Yeah. And as I, I mentioned earlier, how it seems to be quite a handbook almost to where I feel like this definitely should be incorporated into university study and into these courses on humanities and disabilities and all of these, all of these things. There's so many subjects that come up within this book that I just, I do feel like it's definitely a great reference for future generations. And I hope that professors will give, give this book a read or everyone, of course, but professors in particular, because I think that these, these so many important topics and tropes and things are brought, brought up in the book that just aren't discussed enough in society. So I, I think that's such a, such a great piece of literature to have uh, have out there a piece of text here so yeah it's really yeah well can i quote you can i quote you brian because that is exactly what we're working towards right now so uh you know just a practical sense that the um the soft cover edition will likely come out you know sometime next year and um and that's exactly what we're working towards you know to have it be adopted into into classes to um, kind of give the blind perspective on some of these things that are just, you know, that that you will read in college, right? You you very likely will read um, the Odyssey in college. You very likely will encounter, um, you know, some some Sophocles, some Greek tragedies, you know, and and it allows for um, kind of a maybe not such a not such an obvious discussion about blindness, you know, because I. I talk about it in the book of, you know, cause I taught these kinds of classes, these kinds of like Western civ kind of Western literature classes and stuff. And, and it was just so obvious to the kids that like, Oh, of course you poke out your eyeballs and then you can see, you know, in this kind of like right. angels sing hallelujah kind of thing, you know? And it's like, wait a minute, but why is this so obvious? Right. What's the kind of the history of, of our obsession with the metaphorical idea of blindness, you know, why are there so many blind characters? And so I, I really hope that, uh, you know, professors out there, you know, take, take your advice to pick up a copy of their plant eyes. Yes. Let's get into how it might. Yeah. Think about how the blind perspective could really help to open up a lot of things that we just kind of assume, uh, I think from our ocular centric perspective, right? We kind of assume stuff and and maybe we can crack that open and not to mention talk about disability as well a little bit, which doesn't get talked about enough in the in the classroom, I think. And I think that's why the Molyneux Man chapter really stuck with me because it really does examine that that connection between the brain and the eyes and how what we see is what people see is generally a perception of things and that such a such a natural skill that everyone has at, at a certain point in life that 
they don't think of the fact that when you when you're born it's like anything you learn to see and you learn how to interpret with your eyes to where if you're just you know like in my case i was born blind so if i were to just magically somehow or some new scientific development were to get it back it wouldn't necessarily be this this fantastic sort of thing that is sort of looked at in the past through literature where it's like oh the blind man can now see it's not it's not quite that it, simple it'll, and, it'll be a movie yeah absolutely it, many movies right so many movies of like oh and and i mean it's it's an old old trope right the idea that you know that the happy ending involves restoration of sight, you know, and, and I, I remember my, my friend who's an opera singer, Lori Rubin, I talk about her in the, in, in, I think the music chapter and, um, you know, she did this opera called Ilanta and it's a, a blind character, you know, but of course, when we were talking about it, she was like, yeah, it's a beautiful, you know, beautiful opera, beautiful music. But of course the, the blind protagonist, the, the 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 female love interest, gets her sight back at the end of the at the end of the opera, and we both kind of like shared an eye roll, right? Like yeah. happy endings don't involve blindness, right? They they involve getting cured from quote unquote cured from blindness, and and yeah, and that Molyneux chapter was something that was early on in my interest in in kind of thinking about. Blindness is not just like a literary trope, but also as this philosophical and scientific idea that, yeah, that idea of learning to see, I think is something that is still, right? I mean, we've proved it over and over again. They've been doing cataract operations since the early 18th century. And over and over again, it they show that, you know, if somebody is blind from an early age, their brain develops in a very different way. And it makes um, seeing in any kind of like practical sense, very difficult for, for people who get their vision restored. And we keep proving this over and over again. And yet somehow it hasn't gotten into like public awareness. It's so counterintuitive that um, I still will try and, you know, have to like convince sighted people this is true, you know, that like you don't just suddenly get working eyeballs and and suddenly and suddenly see like your your brain has developed in in new ways. And yeah, it's it's very counterintuitive, and I and I hope you know people like us continue to you know talk about it and say, hey, you know, we're not all sitting around waiting for a cure, and in fact, a cure might not be a cure at all. It might actually really mess things up, <laughs> right? It could be very confusing for the brain that has organized itself in a in a different way. And even like the the example in that chapter that you gave about, I think it was a roommate where you you it was a it was Parmesan cheese, but you thought it was a beer until you touched it. And then you <laughs> connected that, that, that relationship with the brain connected to your eyes and then you could see it. No, sadly it was Parmesan cheese. You know, it was, it was, yeah. it was, <laughs> but I think it's yeah, like I'm, the magical changing object back right. and forth maybe. Yeah. Have you experienced that? Cause you've, ha you've had vision through the years, right, Carrie? Cause I, I mean, I, I, I experienced that a lot as a visually impaired person, like where I couldn't see things until I, until I knew what they were. And once I knew what they were or where they were, then I really could see them. Like my brain could organize what these objects were. Um, even though, you know, at first maybe my eyes couldn't see them because I didn't have central vision. I don't, I don't know. Did you experience that at all, Carrie? Oh yeah. I, I could have probably entertained myself through a lot of waiting rooms and at medical appointments over the years, just looking at an object in the room and trying to study it and figure out if I can make it out what it is. 
if it's near enough, I could check it out. But yeah, the, as soon as you touch it, you get that brain connection. And I know I've had a lot of that um, over the years. My vision's declined um, in fits and stops and starts over the years. Um, so mm. yeah, something yeah. Brian Brian can't quite. Yeah, it's well, maybe never really. Still, maybe, I mean, maybe you could. If you see a shadow, you you know, it's sort of similar. The brain's really doing work hard, working hard. It's, but. it's true because I often wonder <laughs> when I'm when I'm walking past something or and I, I, I feel like I sense it and I do have a little bit of light perception. So maybe I am seeing the shadow and it's also the context mm-hmm. knowing if I'm especially if it's a familiar area or if I know I'm looking for the bus stop when I notice there's a, either a shadow or maybe I'm also just hearing that the bus sheltered stopping the, uh, the sound there a little bit or dampening it like things like that yeah. where your brain does give you those cues without you almost even thinking about it eventually. So. Yeah. And it's amazing, right? Because like I, I write about Daniel Kish, right? He got the kind of, he was very, he, he, I don't know, very, very hip sort of in the public radio world for a while there. And he, um, it teaches, um, he teaches what he calls flash sonar, which is basically like a, an active use of echolocation. So making kind of clicking sounds and stuff, but he, you know, people have done a lot of studies on this and, um, people who have lost their vision very early in life, uh, like their visual cortex actually becomes activated by spatial relationships, you know, so, so that, um, it actually is a kind of, I mean, I hate to say this because it's like, there's no other way to explain it. Right. But it's, it's what we would call like an imaging system, right. That it is, it gives a sense like echolocation and facial vision. And like you said, like a, even a passive kind of sense of, of space does affect the visual cortexes or cortices of, of people who are blind. So your brain really can be totally rewired in that way. And, and, um, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. I mean, of course there's the chapter on, um, microscopes and telescopes and, um, that's a good one, Nabry, right? Because, I mean, so that's one area of science that you cover, right? Historically, um, some science from history. Great and title. Some current science studies, yeah. As well, telescopes, microscopes, spectacles, and speculations. I just, I love alliteration, so that, that title in particular really, really <laughs> grabbed my attention. Excellent. I, I, I thought a lot about that one because it was kind of a, it, actually, that chapter was kind of a part of another chapter for a little bit. But also, I mean, in full disclosure, like that, that chapter and the Molyneux chapter um, and the Milton chapter were very much like, you know, my kind of the heart of my dissertation, um, hopefully now quite a bit more accessible than my dissertation was. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I was fascinated by, you know, that the development of the telescope and the microscope, which both happened basically in the 17th century, the early part of the 17th century. And I mean, it totally shifted notions about the visible and the invisible, right? That's where I first started talking about sort of seeing and not seeing, right? Because Mm -hmm. it, it ends up being that, you know, seeing is a matter of layers, right? That, that different lenses, when, when you look at something through a microscopic lens, you can't at the same time see it in a macroscopic or a telescopic way, right? You, you, there's a necessity of certain layers of blindness with um, different sort of um, techno- technological advances in, in sight, you know, that, that that kind of inherent blindness in our sense organs is something that's really interesting to me. And, and I feel like doesn't really get talked about quite enough, you know, that, that our ideas of, of sight and blindness have everything to do with just like our very 
limited human sense organs that we, you know, can e- easily have uh, plucked out, you know, out by a jelly. But uh, there were some reactions from some people at the time, though, like we we don't want this to challenge what we believe about what we thought we knew. Uh, mm-hmm. Or it's like, you know, pe- people are are never happy with the sight they have because as soon as you realize that you have access to a lens that could maybe make what you see clearer, you know, it's t- pretty tempting. But I'm sure that like in the book, you did write about sort of the debate in science and in philosophy at the time. So, of course, you can't have this book without talking about well, spectacles, as they're called in this chapter. But yeah, like it's going from that time all the way to now. And then I don't know if you ever wore glasses. I was going to ask you about your sunglasses in particular. Ah, yeah. You know what? I never had glasses because as soon as they found the the vision loss, it was, you know, it was central vision loss. And so glasses just never helped uh, for me. I mean, I think they gave me one pair, but it was sort of like, oh, just take these because we don't know what's going on, you know, that kind of thing. Because there, there was never, it was never an issue of, you know, focusing, which is what glasses are for, right? Um it was that the cells were just not processing the information. So no, I never wore glasses. And yeah, and I thought that that was, that's just really fascinating that, you know, these lenses, right, that changed everything for say aging scholars of the, of the you know, the late uh, medieval period, right? That suddenly, um, or early Renaissance or so, um, that, that suddenly, I mean, think about it. I, I mean, you guys aren't quite there at the age yet, but like all of my, you know, my middle-aged friends who have their entire lives had wonderful vision suddenly yeah. can't read stuff. You I'm know, starting to hear that with family and certain people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sure, and yeah. suddenly, you know, like my my best friend. I mean, she always she always had you know great vision and and my partner and stuff. And suddenly, there they are, like go into the drugstore to buy some. You know, oops, now it's one x. Oops, now it's one point five x. Right. So I mean, but think about how game changing that was. Right. That suddenly these you know not that there were a ton of literate people at you know in the fifteenth sixteenth century or so, but the ones that were, you know, it was the difference between them being able to to read for the next you know twenty years or whatever. Um, so yeah, I really like that idea of you know technology connected with with sight, and that you know just kind of a reminder, an obvious reminder, of course, that you know what we think of as seeing is is very restricted to our own you know human abilities that are ever changing, even throughout a, a single person's life. So yeah, I spent a lot of time in um, University of Waterloo here in Ontario. Uh, these big places with all the equipment, you know, CCTVs, like we, you know, you talk about in your book mm-hmm. that you used to use. And so, yeah, your it, technology is always um, sort of circling into that. And of course, today it's more important than ever. Um, but yeah, we're going to take a break because it, uh, we're halfway through and there's so much to talk about here with Leona Godan on Outlook today. Um, so we'll be back right after these words, Bri. Yep. We'll be right back on Radio Western with more Outlook. With our guest today, M. Leona Godan, author of the book, Their Plant Eyes, educator, performer, so many things. And we have much more to talk about after these words. Good morning. Welcome back. You're either listening live on Radio Western this morning to Outlook with Brian and I here and our guest, M. Leona Godan. Thank you again, Leona, for coming on Outlook again. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be here with you too. And we were talking about your book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness. And we're trying to sort of explain to any listeners we might have who are, are, are students or professors at Western, 
um, sort of the the trove of things in this book. So I wanted to touch on a few more in the in the second half here. Just little teasers to get people to maybe consider picking up picking up the book. I'd like to start with a few that were new to me. So I knew you've been writing this book there for about a year or more, um, and I was excited. I didn't know what it was going to be, and so excited to get my copy there back in June when it came out with Pantheon Books. With Braille on the cover. Nice, nice exactly. bonus there. I love seeing that. <laughs> I actually just lent the book to uh, a friend of mine to read who's an avid reader. Reads. I don't even know how he reads so many books. I, I, I want to motivate myself to do that, but... Um, but yeah, it was just cool to hand my friend a book that has Braille on the spine and on the cover that wasn't just pasted on after, you know, it was so how the book came. So very cool. Yeah, that was, that was pretty special. I feel like that's kind of a, it's kind of a coup, right? It was like blind culture right there front and center at your, at your quote unquote, uh, you know, normal local library or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. And not something you get if you just get the audiobook, which is also available or the ebook. That is true. You got to You got to get what? What do the What do the kids say about um, uh, like vinyl and and CD? Uh, you got to be a completist, isn't that right. what it is? For yeah, you, have the you have to have the the, the, origi- the the product, nice vinyl. Yeah, yes. the vinyl, but also the convenience of the MP3. Same thing with the book, right? You got to have the hard copy and then the the Kindle and the audiobook and everything. Anyway, and we we also- touched on technology briefly earlier, and that's the amazing thing these days that you know you have. The audiobook option. I was. I read. The, I didn't get a chance to check out the audiobook, but I was reading it with my Braille display through my iPhone and a Bluetooth connection. So there's there's so many ways to access this. I mean, this morning I was quickly reviewing some notes and I was listening to the book just with voiceover on my Mac computer. So there's just endless yeah. amounts of of methods to being able to to access this book. So it's available for anyone. Well, absolutely. And we just have to stick a little word in here for the much maligned ebook, right? I mean, my goodness, you know, the ebook has been absolutely game changing for, for blind and visually impaired people for that very reason, right? You can like easily magnify the text. You can listen to it with text to speech. You can uh, read it with your fingers using a braille display. I mean, it's, it's, it's completely game changing. And I mean, I growing up in a time when it was so hard to get books, you know, books on tape was about all we had. And of course, those were really expensive to produce and and they didn't come around for a long time. You know, if you wanted to get a a new book, you know, a book that just came out, you'd have to wait a year or two or maybe forever for it to come out through, you know, through the library for the blind or or whatever, because it was just so expensive to produce. And now we can get every book basically at the same time as our, as, as our cited um, peers. And, and that's amazing. So yeah, whenever you sighted readers out there want to bash the ebook, remember your blind f- reader friends and just don't do it. <laughs> and you mentioned sighted readers there, and that's another point I just wanted to quick bring up was how you do address the readers throughout the book, either as the blind readers or dear sighted readers. And I just think that's really neat. It gives the book a a personal connection there, and it makes it, it makes the reader feel like they're part of the book, and it it addresses the sighted person. So I think that I think that was really uh, really funny as well, and. It was a nice little touch to the to the. Book. Oh yeah, because I mean, how many times have you read a book where they, uh, you know, they, they'll say you are looking at the words on this page, right? I mean, there's like this assumption of sighted reader, you know, that I, I felt really strongly that I wanted to um, kind of dismantle that a little bit. So thank you. Well, it's like with our show outlook, we always get, we get asked this for certain interviews, and we we discuss it all the time when we're trying to define it is. It, who's the audience for this show? And it can be both. It doesn't have to be one or the other, but is it, is it sighted listeners to learn and to just see blind people doing what we're doing? 
or is it for the blind listeners to see that there's others out there and, and gain, right? It's the same with, with your book. It's like, who's the audience? And it can be multiple yeah. audiences for sure. But the way you address everybody and, and everybody make everybody feel kind of included, it, it, it is does, great. It's yeah, it does personal. seem like that's a, that's a similarity between your book and our show, if I may, if I may say so myself, is like that, yeah. that, that similarity to where it's, it's, and I don't know what audience you had in mind specifically when, when writing this book, but it's, I, I sort of interpret it as being a similar idea to, to really educate and change, change people's minds on, on, uh, on blindness and, and culture and all of this stuff, and, is, which is also what we're trying to do with this show. So I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, and I think like sighted and blind people are going to get different things out of it, right? I think that it, it can be you know, a, a diverse audience, but that maybe the, the message is going to hit differently because they're coming from different perspectives, right? And I, I, I do think about that a lot with, with the book. And, and I think that's absolutely true with your show, right? That there's maybe community building that's happening for, for the blind community um, and to kind of celebrate blind culture. That's something that's really important to me. And it, it seems like, Carrie, I certainly see you sharing all kinds of stuff in the social media world about blind culture and, and, and all of that sort of thing. So that's kind of one side. And then, yeah, for the sighted listener or reader, um, getting to know us, right, in all of our complicated diversity, I think is really important. And then, yeah, a little, little harmless education at the same time, I think. And you mm-hmm. quoted that last time when you, when you said, and you say this in the book as well, that blindness is not, not just a subject, it's a perspective. And I think that that ties into exactly what we've just been talking about. And it's the same with this show. Of course, sometimes we talk very specifically about the subject of blindness, but oftentimes it's just our perspective as blind people living our lives that we, that we bring to this show, no matter what we talk about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, in this book, you talk about, like I said, you mentioned you're, you're very generous with your friends who are also writers and scientists and sound artists and, you know, brilliantly doing creative things in your academic work that you do um, and also in your more perform performance-based um, work. And so, yeah, um, you reference a lot of people, of course, the well-known people, Ray Charles, Stevie Wonder. I was going to talk less about them maybe here and a little bit more about <clears throat> Louis Braille as we've been talking. Uh, I actually think I made my comment last time that I think you kind of remind me of him, Leona. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my gosh. That's a lot to put on somebody. I don't, I don't, I don't know him, but you know, that question about who would you, you know, that question aside from the genius factor, but yeah, you know, that question, who, if you, if you could have dinner with somebody who's dead, who would you want? And so Mm. I would probably, I would probably pick him just to hear what he, his perspective, because I just so enjoy sharing, hearing yours. That's where I mean by comparing you two. It's just, you have such a unique take on it. Like I said, from your two sort of separate not separate worlds you i'm sure you meld them when you <laughs> as best you can but uh, it's the two sides of you that i think make it this book so good go- so great so oh thank you uh, my goodness um yeah me me and louie will be happy to go to your your dinner party when, when <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be fun <laughs> that sounds amazing um yeah and i might have to throw in diderot into that if we're kind of going french you know because he's he's such a great guy and and they're probably they're arguably there might not have been a a, a louis braille without a, a denis diderot and he was quite a quite a riot too so i might add him to our dinner party yeah and and exactly and i hadn't even heard of him so i of course heard of louis but not him so i was i've been learning all throughout um but of course just to give a quick little tease of the one other thing I wasn't aware of that really does paint a picture is your performative side. I think this is what spoke to you. Just maybe give a little teaser and then people hopefully will maybe want to run out and buy the book. 
but about this, the, the, the cafe of the blind. Ah, yes. So, um, that was probably one of the first things that I encountered as a, as a graduate student. Um, gosh, it feels like a hundred years ago. So it was quite a long time ago, um, in the late nineties. And, um, it's funny because back then, you know, there was like, well, I should, I should back up and say that all of us now probably have some kind of method of OCR scanning that could be as simple as like taking pictures on our phone. Right. But, um, back then there was like this huge machine called a Kurzweil machine, which is now just a program that we can put on our computers. Right. And use with a sleek little scanner or whatever to scan books. But back then it was this, yeah, this huge machine. It probably weighed like 50 pounds in the library. And I remember very distinctly like putting these books that were sort of mid 20th century histories of the education of the blind on the, on the Kurzweil scanner and it kind of dry, right. Kind of dry histories of the education of the blind. And then suddenly there's this story of, um, of a guy named Valentin Aoi, you know, we like to call him Howie because the name is spelled really weird. It's H A U umlaut Y. Mm. And he's often called the, uh, the father and apostle of the blind. So, you know, the, the story goes that he was just walking down a Paris street one day in 1771. And he happened upon, um, a group of blind men who were all dressed up in like dense caps and asses ears. There was this like festival, this fair going on. It was probably the month of September. And, um, and they were playing broken instruments and the sheets of music were like facing the audience and the audience were all drunk and dancing around. And it was just complete mayhem and everybody was having a riot. And Valentine Howie, who was very much sort of a, a product of the enlightenment, right? So of reason, of ration, he was, he was a linguist um, or he studied ancient languages. Uh, I think he was called a, an orthographer. Um, but he saw this this picture and he thought, I am going to make the blind read. That was literally his idea. It's like, I'm going to make the blind read. He didn't know how he was going to do it, um, but he ended up opening up the very first school for the blind about 12 years after that. And that school for the blind is where Louis Braille would then go to be educated. And I should say that at that time, uh, uh, Howie's invention was basically embossed print, right? So it was figuring out that you could push the the Latin characters up from behind, right? And that they would appear, it, you would do it in reverse, and then they would appear uh, the correct direction as embossed print on the, on the front page. And, and so he taught his students to read that way, including Louis Braille, right? So that's how Louis Braille learned to read was using these embossed characters. And of course, embossed characters need to be really big in order to be read. And so these books were like ridiculously huge and, you know, very clunky. I mean, we, we often think about Braille as being a little bit on the bulky side, but, um, but these were even more bulky and huge. And also it was very difficult to write. So, um, yeah, should I continue with that story? But or maybe we'll leave that as the teaser, right? So, how did Louis Braille come up with his point system? You gotta buy the book. Right. Just kidding. It's I... Like you could probably find it on Google but, or on Wikipedia. But my but, version is much more fun is that. Yeah, we, we do Wikipedia <laughs> yeah. and Google all the, all the time every day. Kind of dry. But that's that's so cool. Yeah, because I I like like Carrie. I hadn't heard of. Uh, how we either and I wasn't sure how to pronounce it because I just felt the felt the name in Braille so this is the first time I'm actually hearing it said um, and again that sort of 
explains the difference between the audio and the, and the tactile, but I can think right now how it, how it felt when I saw the, saw the name there with the little accent there on the Y as well. And it's just a, it's an interesting, interesting thing. And I, Carrie touched on it as well there about the, these extremes from the, from the Ray Charles um, and compared to the, the blind beggar, but there is really that middle ground in the gray area, which you, you cite so many different people throughout this book that it makes me want to just make a giant gigantic list and, and read up more about all of these different <laughs> people because you do generally just hear about these extremes um, in, the, in the media generally and you don't, you don't really get that middle ground. So I think that's a, that's a huge benefit. Um, but then, yeah, tying no, it back to Don't the, get me started about the media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be a whole episode on its own probably just focused on that. Um, but yeah, just, just, exactly. just a quick say that like, like you talked about with there with this, this um, cafe of the blind, it, it really brings up this whole question between exploitation versus blind people choosing to perform. And that, and that ties in a lot to performance in general. And, and I think you touched on this in the book, but I, I've also just thought a lot about this where being a musician myself, there is a certain inclusive feel to the community because it is generally a lot of artsy, kind of creative, open-minded people who don't quite fit in. So in a way, I fit in with that. But in another way... Blind people are often seen as these super humans to where sometimes it is awkward or you are sort of people have trouble relating or connecting with you. And even though you feel like, oh, I'm a musician, you are too. But they kind of feel like, whoa, you have extra heightened hearing and I don't know how to work with you. Like, that's too intense. Like, so it's a really weird <laughs> mixture of the both of those things, I find. I'm so glad you brought that up, too, because I, I didn't get that far right. I got all distracted by Louis Braille. Um understandably, but um, yeah, when I read that scene of the cafe of the blind, it was like, you know, Howie's kind of response, which was to educate the blind was a wonderful response. But I do think that a lot of those versions of the story kind of leave out the perspective of those blind performers. And I have to say that like, as a, as a kind of a growing performer, when I first read that, or actually that was even before I started really performing again, but there was something sort of attractive about it at the same time. Like, I'm very glad, you know, obviously grateful that Valentine Howie wanted to to set up the very first school for the blind. But I also thought, wow, I wonder, that must have been a really exciting month, you know, that those performers were performing on the stage and, and everybody was, you know, throwing money at them and buying them beers. And, um, and can we really call it exploitation if we have no idea, right? Everything leads me to believe that they were performing under their own volition, right? That they they had a maybe sighted person who had brought them to the cafe and said, hey, this would be a fun thing to do, but there's nothing to, to, to show in the history books that they were compelled to do this performance, right? And one can imagine that they were having a grand old time, right? And I think that sometimes people are a little too quick to, yeah, kind of point the finger of exploitation, um, which is something that I also talk about, you know, with, with Helen Keller's performing on vaudeville as well. So um, I think we have to be a little wary, right. Of saying, Oh, well, this kind of performance is okay for blind people, but this other kind of performance, no, 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 that's demeaning. That's embarrassing, you know, for sure. So for anyone who has just tuned in, we're speaking today with Leona Godin on outlook about her recent book, their plant eyes came out published through Pantheon books back in June of 2021. And I just want to mention right now that you, you've already just brought up Helen Keller, that the Helen Keller in Vaudeville and in Love, that chapter for me was, was a highlight. I, I grew up, of course, like, like most people, I think, learning a little bit of Helen Keller in school. But I think 
for one, sort of the way with disabilities, we, we tend to sometimes think that people need to learn more about our disability, in, our, in my case, blindness, but other disabilities are, can still st be difficult. So I think when I always heard about Helen Keller being blind and deaf, it kind of just, I don't know, you know, probably had certain stereotypes in my mind or was kind of just like, how could this person be so influential? And then I think also just me being a, being a little boy, not, not being a girl, I didn't maybe have the same connection to Helen Keller as Carrie. But through reading this chapter and learning about her work through women's suffrage movement and her beliefs on abortion and workers' rights and her socialist views... Um, just all of this stuff really opened up my eyes, so to speak, on uh, on how brilliant she must have been and, and how you were talking earlier about meeting Louis Braille, who, of course, I would also love to meet. Braille's one of my favorite things. I feel like Helen Keller would have been someone I would have really loved to meet if I could because she just sounded like such an interesting character, and I never quite had that perspective of her before reading your book. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Oh, excellent. Yeah, did you feel connected with, with Helen Keller, Carrie, in in a way that was different. I, I, um, I grew up reading her. I had this image, like you said, of her whole story and then Anne Sullivan, her teacher's whole story before her story. Um, but I definitely learned a lot in this book about her that I didn't know, even though I'd done some research. I'd done some high school projects on her back in the day. I, I also learned a lot. And just exploring her, her experience as a woman and who didn't really get to experience romantic love maybe more than once and that even then it was just a, a glimpse right like that was just and it led into a chapter about talking about the broader subject of in the media and in society when blind people aren't seen as sexual it's just not or if it is it's to an extreme degree that it's almost freak showish but mm -hmm. um yeah so it's great that you went farther than the usual with Helen Keller in most places when you if you look you usually just find the usual sort of surface stuff that we all knew about her, but she was witty and interesting. And in vaudeville, I, I, I can tell from getting to know you better recently that that's something that would definitely draw you to that whole story. So thanks for putting it in the book. So yeah, thanks for coming on again, Leona. Uh, we're coming down to the end here. I just wanted to say like everything we talk about before the invention of Braille, when, when John Milton was alive, it was all needing an amanuensis and, and needing to memorize things. And after they're in the invention of Braille, and now here we are. And it's it's brought us to where we are, where it allows you, Leona, to be independently writing books for Brian and I to be doing a show like this with technology and, and all their advances. This is what we've got. Um, but you talk about blind pride in the book. So for the blind readers and for the sighted readers and people to know about, what do you think ending off the show today kind of, um, thanks again for coming on, what do you think we can do about that? Because a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, this idea of blind pride. And um, I think it, it's going to take a few different uh, battlefronts, I suppose. I mean, I do talk in the book about, um, you know, just the, the kind of ubiquitous use of blind as a, as a kind of a negative epithet, right? Blind rage, blind faith, blind love. I mean, it's all sort of meant to indicate not not seeing exactly, but sort of like thoughtlessness or unconsciousness, you know, mm -hmm. and I worry about that, right? Because then how can we have blind pride when every other instance of the word blind is negative? It kind of makes it sound like blind pride is like, oh, when you're, you know, like your pride blinds you to the, um, yeah. needs and desires of others. Right. I mean, it's like in every other instance, blind is negative. And right. then how can we kind of construe blind pride as something that's alongside other pride movements, right. Of gay pride or, um, you know, uh, black pride or 
everything, disability pride even, right? But um, blind is just so ubiquitously used negatively that that's one thing that we might kind of work on as a society, right? And I think that the way that that can happen is we just need more blind writers, right? We need us to be out there kind of, and, and editors and saying, yeah, maybe we don't need to use blind in that way at this, you know, like mm-hmm. so kind of thoughtlessly use the word blind as, as a negative um, kind of intensifier of something that's already sort of negative, you know, like blind drunk, for example. But the other side of it is um, really helping each other out, right? Like exactly what you're doing on this show, you know, of, of bringing more blind people together, you know, and, and talking about it the things that we produce. Cause I think that this is probably true for a lot of minorities, right. Is that the, the, the instinct I think of, um, the dominant culture is to hold somebody up as an inspiration, right. We talk a lot about inspiration porn, right. And, and the idea is that you have a singular individual who manages to overcome their whatever, right? Their their color, their disability, their whatever the dominant culture sees as sort of a negative, that the singular individual is kind of held up above the rest. And that's so dangerous, right? Because that that disallows for community on the one hand, you know, but it also suggests that in order to, you know, succeed in the world, that we have to kind of deny or overcome that thing, right? That disability, that blindness, as opposed to, and this is really where blind pride comes into, as opposed to leaning into it, right? And and really um, enjoying and celebrating the the difference, right? The, the difference of being in the world as a non-sighted person, right? It, it can be something to celebrate and I think that the idea of like overcoming it is something that's a little bit dangerous because then you get into this situation where we are like congratulated, you know, for not for not looking blind or not acting blind or all these things like these stereotypes. Yeah, that's a big right? one. And, I wrote down that sentence, you don't look blind and just how how powerful yeah. that sounds, but how negative that that feels. And I don't know it's what so dangerous, mean by that. Right? Yeah, it's just a yeah, it's dangerous because then the knee-jerk reaction for us is to say, oh, thank you, right? So then right. you're basically thanking somebody for telling you that you don't look like what you are, right? And that, I mean, talk about, you know, internalized ableism or internalized shame, right? It's like, it's just very dangerous. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm all for, you know, promoting us all together as, as a blind culture, you know, not that we're all the same, but that, the, it, that there is something that we can offer the world. You know, it's not just about like, let us into the sighted world. It's like, no, no, let's actually shift the sighted world a little bit more in our direction. Yeah. And that's the big word throughout the, the book. And the overall theme is this ocular centrism where there's so much put in, in seeing, but it's a lot of it is our society. And, and it's like you talked there about words and, you know, a lot of people will say like, oh, it's just words, but if, if it's just words, what's the, what's the point? Like this stuff really does have deep meaning. And it's, of course, these things are so ingrained in culture. We're not saying never use the word blind, but it, it's more so to think about how you're using it and what you're really representing and how that affects the greater, the greater good of, of, of culture and history and development and, and all of these things that you so poignantly bring up throughout this, this entire book and throughout the interview today. There's just, there's so much to, to unpack as they say to, that you could really get into with all of this stuff. It's, it's really fascinating, and uh, it really, really did have a huge impact on me. 
And you've moved on to fiction. I mean, is that what you're kind of more yeah, working maybe. on now? What's the future hold and how, do you, how are you feeling about the book so far? And kind of what new projects are you maybe considering? Obviously, this just came out a few months ago. You, you should have some time to bask in its... Uh... So, I mean, it's like having a baby and then they automatically ask you when you're having your second. So. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, luckily, it's it's a little easier on the on the body than you know trying to well, think out babies. Not that I yeah. knew too much about it, but no, I've actually had this other book in the works for a long time. So um, now it's just kind of trying to find the time to to finish it up and to get it into good enough shape to send it to my agent. And um, it is a novel, and and uh, it, mm. I, it's bad to talk about uh, sort of projects yeah. in the works, but For I sure. will say that I have an, a complete, what they call a zero draft. So I got all the way to the end and now I'm going back and, and, and rewriting it basically. And, uh, I mean, and of course it has uh, not, not one, but two blind protagonists. So that's about all I'll say about it, but it right. should be, if it is what I, if it becomes what I would like it to be, it, it will be sort of a lot of my ideas that are in the book as, you know, sort of more um, descriptive or, or sort of, uh, you know, more intellectually dealt with in, in, in their plant eyes, um, I think will be sort of in action in the novel, I, I hope, and, uh, and probably much more accessible and fun and an actual, you know, like beach read or something. <laughs> exactly. Thank, thank you, Leona, their plant eyes, and that's their T-H-E-R-E, right? Yeah, good to point That's that right. out for, for anyone listening because, yeah. yeah, you might automatically it's, assume it's the T-H-E-I-R, but no, it's... Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Go go find the book, Their Plant Eyes, A Personal and Cultural History of Blindness by M. Leona Godin. Leona, thanks so much for coming on. I don't know if there's any final things you want to say, but we just really appreciate you being on the show here and really want to... We're going to keep referencing this book for years to come on, on Outlook here. So uh, th- thanks so much for, <laughs> for everything you've done. I love it. I know we should have, you know, make sure that you get like some of the people that are alive and well in in the book. You got to get them on the show. So I think I've been trying to do some matchmaking there for for some of the artists that make appearances that you could that would be awesome. chat with them and yeah, I, I love that. Um, excellent. Oh my goodness. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you both. I feel like we could just go on and on all day long. But uh, mm-hmm. sure, we could. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. So- all right. We're going to end the show today that everybody, thanks for listening to Outlook today, um, with the quote that the title for Leona's book came from, and um, it's a fun one. So let's let Leona take, uh, take us out today on Outlook with this quote from Paradise Lost. That's right. This is from book three of Paradise Lost. So much the rather thou celestial light shine inward and the mind through all her powers irradiate. There plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. Send us an email, outlook on radiowestern at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at OutlookCFB and on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.